Yeah, good morning. Thank you for having us today. So some of you know us already. Some of you heard us in Sunday school, but many of you didn't. So a quick intro about who we are. I'm Grace, or Gracie, the daughter of Luke and Carmen Schrockhurst and the niece of Mike and Judy. And I'm Hugo, Gracie's husband. <laughs> yeah, we have two sons, uh, Jeremiah and Simeon. Jeremy is uh, five and a half, and Simeon, Simeon, he's almost four, actually, this, this month. So for the past eight years, we have been living and surfing in a slum community on the outskirts of Jakarta, Indonesia. And most of our neighbors make their livelihood by garbage uh, collecting and scavenging for recyclables through the big trash heap in our neighborhood. And in our slum community, we run a kindergarten and after-school program for about 70 kids uh, each day. But that is not exactly what we are going to talk about today. For this time together, we'll be looking at the passage that was read from Luke. So if you want to follow along, you can. We welcome you to open your Bibles to Luke 14. So in Indonesia, we serve with a team of Indonesians. And for the past year and a half, we've been working through the Gospel of Luke together every Wednesday night with our teammates. We finally finished a few days before boarding the airplane back in July to come to America. And we feel like we've been soaking in the book of Luke for this year. And we've learned so many things from it. But we want to warn you that the text for today is a hard text, and we found this hard to write and humbling. Mm -hmm. So like what we mentioned before, I'm like at Sunday school, we said Indonesia is the country with the most most Muslims in the world. But also it is about like 15% or 10% Christians. So in Jakarta where we live, there are mega churches where one must arrive an hour early to stand in line until the doors of the auditorium open, and thousands of church attenders can enter. Such a mega church may have five or six services in one day. Normal-sized churches exist also, with anywhere from 50 to 300 people on a given Sunday. But one thing all these churches probably have in common is they hope their attendance grow, right? And thousands professing Jesus, thousands singing worship songs to Jesus, thousands coming to listen to sermons. But can we imagine if Jesus showed up suddenly, what would he have to say to the crowds? Churches are always looking for more sheep to join their folds. I don't know, is it the same here in America? But in today's story, it seems like Jesus did not get the memo about wanting increased church attendance. (laughs) Jesus looks at the crowds following him, and he says some of the seemingly harshest words he ever said. In verse 26 and 27, Whoever comes to me and doesn't hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Whoa, is this really what Jesus means? Hate? Aren't we always supposed to love? And why do you guys put the the sign near the church over there about welcoming your neighbors? So in Matthew, Jesus says a similar thing. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. It's from Matthew 10, verses 37 to 39. So maybe in this context, in Luke, Jesus doesn't actually mean we have to hate or our family, but it is clear that he means we need to love him more than anyone or anything else. Following Jesus may create division or trouble or disapproval from those we love, but ultimately our allegiance is to him. So a little context from the book of Luke. If you back up to Luke chapter 9, it says that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So for more than half of the book of Luke, Jesus is on his way towards Jerusalem, and he tells his disciples numerous times that what awaits for him there is suffering, torture, and ultimately death. But his disciples, the twelve, they don't get it. We saw that over and over again as we studied Luke. Even though Jesus tells them plainly, they cannot understand what he is talking about. If the twelve disciples don't understand what Jesus means, even more so the crowds that are flocking towards him in today's story. So the question is, why are the crowds coming to Jesus anyway? Throughout the Gospel of Luke, we see crowds coming to Jesus, hoping to hear his teaching, receive healings, see miracles, experience freedom from demonic possession, get free food, and hope for political deliverance from the Roman occupation at that time. But Jesus makes it very clear to follow him, there is a cause. So Jesus tells two short stories to illustrate his point in verse 28 to 32. For which of you, intending to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So through these these two short illustrations, Jesus is inviting the crowds to weigh their decision about following him. There is a cost. He's warning them to not start something that they don't want to continue. But what is the cost? Our family, our spouse, our children, our career goals, our possessions. So we want to share some stories from our lives in our journey of following Jesus to the slums of Jakarta. By no means do we want to say that we are perfect or have arrived in complete understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. No, we don't want to say that. But we are still learning daily and wrestling daily with what it means to follow Jesus. So I come from a middle class family. But my parents worked really hard to get there. My mom didn't even graduate from elementary school, but my dad graduated from high school. They worked very hard, moving to Jakarta in 1970 in search of a better life than village life. It was their dream that all three of their children would get a good education and graduate from college and be able to get good jobs and good life. And I did graduate from college with a degree in economics. My parents and I hoped that I would get a a job working in a bank. At that time, I'm like, I thought, 
like that. But the first time I visited the slum, Gracie and her team was in, I felt that I met Jesus there. I knew Jesus was there with the people who had just lost everything in the fire. After that experience, my heart and my mind had to discern with God what it meant for my life, actually. But I knew that if I called myself a follower of Jesus, I had to be where Jesus was. But when I decided to follow Jesus into the slum community, there were a lot of different negative reactions. My parents were very shocked and very unhappy with my decision. Why would I quit my paying job to throw my life away in the slum? Why didn't I accept job offers at nice middle class offices with job security? My sister and her, her family also didn't understand and weren't very supportive. When we would come to visit, they would see my darker skin from hours playing outside with kids in the slum and call me, you're not handsome anymore. <laughs> I'm like, church friends also didn't understand. One day a church leader came to visit us. We were so excited to have her or about her showing interest in our work. But it turns out she came with the intention of telling me to get a real job and do ministry just on the side of my free time. So the concerns of these people make sense, right? My family loves me and wants what they think is best for me. I know that my parents love me so much. But I knew that I had a choice to follow the worries of my family and friends or follow the voice of Jesus leading me somewhere that doesn't make sense to the world. But thankfully, a little bit, by a little bit, I'm like, after a few years, my parents have become more supportive of our work. And I can hear my, my mom is always praying for us. Yeah. So verse 27, Jesus says, Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And this is not the first time that Jesus says this in the Gospel of Luke. The first time was back in chapter 9. Then he said to them all, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? Hmm. I don't know what comes to your minds when you think of taking up your cross, but I know that for first century followers of Jesus, these were serious words. They all knew about this form of capital punishment that the Romans used to torture troublemakers. Perhaps they had already seen people crucified on the side of the road. Maybe for us when we think of the cross, we think of a shiny necklace that we wear, their grandmother gave us, or maybe a beautiful stained glass window in a church. But let's not forget that the cross is a torture instrument. These words of Jesus are intense. They were troubling words for his followers to hear then, and they should be just as unsettling for us to hear now. But before talking more about the cross, I want to back up again and, and we want to ask, what is it that Jesus is inviting people to follow him to, inviting mm-hmm. us to? So when Jesus started his ministry, after being tempted for 40 days, he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. On the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue and read from Isaiah. And he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He sat down. Everyone was looking at him. And then Jesus said, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So this was Jesus' first public teaching in the synagogue. Jesus is declaring this is what he's here to do. God's kingdom is coming to earth, breaking through, putting things right. That's why we titled the sermon, The Right Side Up Kingdom. I know there's the really famous Mennonite book, The Upside Down Kingdom, but really I feel like God's kingdom is the right side up kingdom. And that's what we see over and over again throughout Jesus' ministry. It's what he invited people to join him in, kingdom work, God's kingdom work, healing the sick, freeing people from demon oppression, declaring good news to the poor. These are signs of the inbreaking of God's kingdom. And also Jesus teaches so much about how the kingdom works and secrets of the kingdom. We can expand on everything today. But one of the secrets of God's kingdom is what is that we must lose our life to save it. If we love other things or other people more than Jesus, or if we hold so tightly to our possessions that actually it is our possessions that possess us, then Jesus says we cannot be his disciple. Now it is hard. He didn't say it is hard to be his disciple. Jesus uses the word cannot. It is impossible. We cannot have two masters. We have to choose who we follow. Whose voice are we going to listen to? I like the image of trains. Trains cannot be on two different tracks at the same time. So which track do we choose? I want to share a little bit of my story and my journey of following Jesus and carrying my cross. So nine years ago, I joined Servants to Asia's Urban Poor, followed Jesus to the slums of Jakarta. Okay, that sounds like picking up a cross, right? And in some ways it was, but to be honest, I loved it. Yes, it was hard to say goodbye to family and friends, but I love the language learning, the bonding with the new culture, washing clothes by hand, and communal life in the slums. It was exciting and fun on most days. And then it became even more fun when God blessed me with a wonderful husband to share life and ministry with in the slums. But then we had kids, and suddenly I was no longer in control. <laughs> Mothers resonate. Being a mom has taught me more about bearing a cross than anything else has. Jeremy was only 21 months old when Simeon was born, and Jeremy had a lot of trouble sleeping. Most nights I had to fall asleep with Jeremy on my one side, holding my arm, because that's the only way he would fall asleep, and Simeon was nursing on my other side. And I often thought about the cross as I was in that position. <laughs> Stretched both ways, physically and emotionally exhausted. In the slum, the boys do not sleep well. It's hot, always, even with four fans on. Simeon gets awful heat rashes on his head and his body, and he wakes up frequently from itching. We do have a Sabbath house that we go to on the weekends uh, that we use as a team center also for, for meetings with our team. And once a week when we go there, we see that our boys actually can sleep through the night with air conditioning. Yeah. But then we go back to the slum, and Simeon's heat rash, reco- Simeon's heat rash returns. But the boys love it in our neighborhood. Jeremy spends all day outside playing with his, his gang of buddies, and they learn so much there, and they thrive, actually, in our neighborhood. The image of Simeon putting on little purple 
mud boots to jump in puddles as we walk across a trash heap comes to mind. So I've had to come to accept that the idea of being entitled to an eight-hour-long, uninterrupted night's sleep is not actually the reality for a lot of the world. It is one of the perks of comfortable life in America or comfortable middle-class life in air conditioning in Jakarta. But every week we return to our home in the slum, even though we know that with kids it's hard. And for us, picking up our cross and following means facing things like interrupted sleep, heat rash, rats, Hugo hates rats, <laughs> mosquitoes, trash, smoke from burning trash, and mud during rainy season. Mm-hmm. But we believe that Jesus calls us there, and we know that Jesus cares for our kids even more than we do. And God has been so faithful to us. Yes, following Jesus in Islam is hard, but we know that Jesus is with us. He also understands suffering, and he is with us. So we stand here today confessing that it is hard to follow Jesus. But this is the invitation to us, to all of us, the invitation to church, to join in the work of declaring the kingdom of God is at hand. But to do so, we must be willing to lose our lives in order to find it. We don't know exactly what that means for your lives, but we believe that if you are listening to God in prayer and surrendering your life to Him, He will guide you. So we know that not everyone is called to serve in slums. Mm -hmm. But side note, as we said earlier in Sunday school, currently there's one billion people in the world that live in slums. By 2030, that number will double. It will be two billion people in slums. That will be one out of every four people on this planet. So how is the church going to respond? Mm -hmm. But even if you don't go to a slum, there is kingdom work to do wherever you live. So how does Jesus want to use your profession your possessions, your family, to be a blessing to others? And how can we come to a point of surrendering and realizing that it's not actually ours in the first place? Everything we have is the Lord's, and we should be holding it with open hands. Jesus says, So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Salt is good, But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. They throw it away. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. So actually, often these salt verses separated from passage. But for us, they cannot be separated. It is one and the same story. No one ever asked for one grain of salt, right? No, no. we ask for a pinch or a teaspoon at least. In the same way, we are many. We are a community of followers of Jesus. We are not lone rangers. We cannot do this alone. Actually, Jesus wants many followers. Jesus would be happy with, the, with overflowing church buildings if they are salty. If those sitting in the pews actually followed him, We are the church. We must be salt for the earth. We must be different than the status quo. We must not let ourselves lose our saltiness. If we have a whole bowl full of unsalty salt, it is worthless. But a pinch of salty salt is powerful. And how can we be made salty again? Perhaps this is just a rhetorical question. Perhaps it is not possible 
But I feel there is a correlation to the first prayer to the soul. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. So we were doing some yard work a few weeks ago for my parents. We decided to attack one of their flower beds that was completely out of control. There were huge weeds, overwhelming vines, and lots of ornamental grass. We cut down the big weeds easily. We pulled away all the vines, and we chopped down the grass. But a week later, the ornamental grass was already growing back. So I got down on my hands and knees, attempting to rid the soil of the grass, of the roots. But it was so hard. Um, for many of us, it, and it reminded me of a story from the Bible that many of us know from Sunday school, right? The story of different soil. Some seeds fall on the path, some on the rocky ground, some in soil with weeds, and some in good soil. When Jesus explains to his disciples the meaning of the parable, he tells them this about the weeds. And this is from Luke 8, verse 14. As for what fell among the thorns, these are the ones who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Most of us probably do not think that we have thorns in our lives. We think that Jesus was probably talking about bigger weeds that cause more serious damage. But maybe what is in our lives is actually just ornamental grass. But the root system of that ornamental grass are really crazy. I worked for hours trying to rid the soil to to make it usable again. But there were still roots everywhere. And I think that maybe this is what Jesus is talking about. The cares of the world, the riches, our possessions, they choke us. They make our soil unable to grow plants that produce fruit, unable to mature. But if we are willing to give up everything, then the church will be salty. Mm -hmm. Then the followers of Jesus will be following. We will be working together with Jesus, witnessing the kingdom of God come. And it's not all about dying, okay? But there can be no resurrection without the cross. And if we want to experience new life, real abundant life, then we have to listen to Jesus. He does want what is best for us. But God's understanding of life is very different from the glittery glamour of the American dream. I want to read a poem by Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary to India for 55 years. And for those of you who follow my newsletters, you probably have discovered that I'm kind of obsessed with Amy Carmichael. I quote her a lot. Now, here's a poem. His own. Their joy should be to bear his cross and shame. Their cure to pour for others' wounds a balm. Their rest, to labor grandly in his name, to change earth's cry of anguish to a psalm. Swift from their clasp should drop all scepters down, to free their hands, God's healing cup to bear. Swift from their brows lift even a royal crown, lest God's name on their foreheads, written, fair, be hidden, and some sad soul miss it there. So let anyone with ears to hear, listen. Amen. So as a response to the sermon, we want to teach you a song. We actually wrote this song a year ago. The song is based on Psalm 72, actually, which is the lectionary psalm from today, right? Declaring who our king is and what his kingdom is like. Okay. So we read the the psalm earlier as the call to worship, and it's a beautiful psalm. I think that the lyrics are going to be up here. Um, the psalm declaring this image of the king, the coming king, and, and what his kingdom is like and what this king does. So this is, we'll, 
It's pretty easy, so hopefully you'll catch along and be able to sing with us because both of us have colds and our voices aren't very great right now. <laughs> um, but, yeah, this is the king that we follow and invite us to sing together.